0: it's tech biter worldwide i'm bill Blynn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes that's because we leave out the sports most of the jingles the weather and the commercials podcast number 299 for the week of july 1st 2012 this week a fraud that skype can't seem to eliminate how to change the Windows 7 logon on screen. Dreamweaver 6 packs new features in a familiar interface and in short circuits 71 identical reminders that claim to be from LinkedIn. Photoshop Lightroom 4 heads for the cloud and if you wonder what Microsoft can buy for 1.2 billion dollars, I can tell you. Often when my Skype phone number rings, I find myself wondering why Skype can't eliminate a particularly annoying fraud. Skype does make it possible to block calls from anyone who's not in your address book, and if you don't need your Skype ID to be generally accessible, that's a good choice. But because of the way I use Skype, specifically the fact that I have a New York City phone number attached to the Skype account, I really can't limit calls to just the people I know. So once or twice a day, there's a call that purports to be an urgent system notification from Skype. It's nothing of the sort, of course, so I refuse the call and block the origination point. But like a game of whack-a-mole, the creeps who run this particular fraud just call from another location. The message it delivers is from a poor-quality text-to-speech generator. It explains that the computer must be repaired. Of course, it helpfully provides a URL for me to type into a browser. I haven't done that, but an organization called spywareremove.com has, and I have a link to their video that shows just exactly what happens. You'll find it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Dozens of these fraudulent cleaner scams exist, maybe hundreds, but most use a web-based pop-up. This one's different. It uses a different kind of vector. Skype. The URL cited in the video that you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website is soshos.com. Soshos looks a lot like sophos, and Sophos is a legitimate vendor. Well, that could fool some people. And connecting to any rogue site with a browser is dangerous. Instead, I used a Windows PowerShell command to retrieve text from the site. I wasn't particularly surprised to find that the site had been shut down. As soon as one site is eliminated, though, another springs up on yet another hosting service. Several years ago, I did follow one of those links intentionally with a browser, but I was using a Mac at that time and the threat level for Macs back then was near zero. What was amusing back then was the fact that the computer scan reported hundreds of errors in the registry. Macs don't have a registry structure, and it said that many of the files in the Windows directory on Drive C were infected. Well, Macs don't have Drive letters, and unless you've installed Windows using virtual machine software... There is no Windows directory, either. You can read the full Spyware Remove report on this particular fraud on their website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. com is a security research center dedicated to providing up-to-date information on spyware and other kinds of malware. The organization's site says that its key role in the anti-spyware community is to identify and report spyware trojans, rootkits, and other malware threats so that users can securely and easily protect their computers. Malware creators are constantly changing their tactics to avoid detection, so you need to be on your toes when it comes to the newest forms of malware. spywareremove.com says their efforts on malware research will serve as a guiding path to allow you to make educated decisions on whether a program is considered to be malware or has been verified as safe. That's pretty good advice. And to return to my opening question about why Skype can't eliminate frauds such as these, well, I don't really know. The calls do come from Skype accounts, and I presume that once an account has been reported enough times, Skype closes it. These fraudulent operations always seem to have names that include such terms as emergency and repair, So I wonder, couldn't Skype watch for registrations that use these terms and then investigate? Or when people sign up for an account, couldn't Skype require proof of identity? These actions wouldn't eliminate the frauds, but they would make it a lot harder for the fraudsters to set their traps. (music) Ever wonder how to change the Windows 7 logon screen? You may have noticed that some computer manufacturers have their own special logon screen, and maybe you've wished that you could do this on your computer, or you'd like to get rid of theirs and substitute yours. Well, this is a how-to section. It's the first of what I hope will be an occasional feature on TechBiter Worldwide, in which I'll share information about how to accomplish something that you might want to do but wonder how it's done. In some cases, Today, for example, the topic really will be pretty frivolous. But watch this space on the TechBiter Worldwide website for useful how-tos on later programs. The Windows 7 logon screen is fine, and you probably see it for only a few seconds as you select a username and then provide a password. But maybe you're tired of being greeted by that plain blue screen, or the OEM's screen. If you want to change it, you can. Maybe you'd like a photo of your owner, the cat, of course. Or your friend, the dog. Or maybe your spouse, instead of that plain blue screen. Well, I did, and here's how I made Windows show me what I wanted to see at Logon. First, be aware this does involve editing the registry. And if that makes you uncomfortable, or you don't know how to back up the registry before editing it, then you should do one of two things. Stop, don't proceed, or perform an internet search to learn how to back up the registry. It's really not hard to do, so that's the step I'd recommend. So, now that you've backed up the registry, start the registry editor. You can do that by pressing the Windows key, pressing R for run, and then type regedit, R-E-G-E-D-I-T. Press enter. Accept the warning, and continue. Some of the keys may already be expanded if you've used the registry editor before, so what you want to find is H key local machine in the leftmost column and right-click it. Then select Find, and type the letters O-E-M-B-A-C-K-G-R-O-U-N-D, OEM Background, in the dialog box that opens. So, in a few moments, the registry editor will show you the OEM Background key. Or maybe not. It is possible that the key doesn't exist on your computer. If it doesn't, you'll need to create it, and if you do need to create the key, you'll need to drill down several levels. Check the TechBiter Worldwide website for the entire path. And when you've drilled down to the location shown on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you want to select Background in the left panel and then right-click it. Choose New D-Word Value. Name the new key OEM Background with capital O, capital E, capital M, and a capital B. The rest of it all lowercase. So now that you've located or created the D-Word OEM Background key, you want to double-click it in the right panel, the value will probably be 0, you need to change that to 1. In computer speak, this is simply changing the value from no to yes. After you make that change, click OK and close the registry editor. That's it. At least, that's it for the registry editor. Now you need to create a location for your new background. Open Windows Explorer and type or copy and paste the link you'll find on the TechBiter Worldwide website into the address line. The address is percent sign, W-I-N-D-I-R, percent sign, which is Windows Directory, backslash system32, backslash O-O-B-E. Now, in most cases, that's going to translate to C, Windows, system32, O-O-B-E. But if you use the Windir directory, you'll be sure to get to the right place. You then need to create a new directory called Info. Make sure it's all in lowercase letters. And then inside that directory, create another directory called Backgrounds. So now you have C, Windows, System32, OOBE, Info, Backgrounds. And that's where you're going to want to put your background image. And you may find that those directories already exist. If you have an IBM or an HP or a Dell computer, they'll usually already have these directories. If you find that the directories already exist, that's okay, and the lowest directory probably will have a file in it called background_default.jpg, and that's the file you're going to want to replace. Rather than deleting that existing background file, you really should just rename it. Press the F2 key and put the letters old in front or at the end. Doesn't matter, just change the name to something other than what it is, but don't delete the file. Now you're going to create a new file to place in this directory. There are four conditions that that file must meet. First, it has to be named background_default.jpg. Background is in lowercase letters. The D in default is capitalized. The rest of the word is lowercase. There's no space between background and default, and the extension is .jpg. The file you create cannot be larger than 245 kilobytes. The file should be the same ratio. As your screen, but it need not be the same size as your screen. Now, if those two final points seem contradictory, they're not. Here's what I mean. Let's say you have a widescreen monitor with pixel dimensions of 1920 by 1080. That's fairly common. It's the size of a high-definition video monitor. The image you create can be 1920 by 1080 pixels, but an image that's 1000 by 563 pixels will work equally well while an image that's 1000 by 800 pixels will appear distorted, so the ratio, the number you get when you divide the width by the height, must be the same for the monitor and your image. If you use an application such as Adobe Photoshop to save the image to the backgrounds directory, Windows will refuse permission to store the file there and suggest that you stick it somewhere else. That's okay. I have a temp directory on the desktop, and I use that for situations like these. Store the file in that directory or any other directory that you have access to, and then, using the Windows Explorer, copy the new file to the backgrounds directory. You'll get a warning, but you can accept it and place the file there. When you have the image in place, check to make sure you've followed all the rules, reboot the computer, and enjoy your new logon screen. Glance, you might think that Adobe Dreamweaver CS6 doesn't have much that's new to show you, but the fact that the interface has changed very little disguises numerous changes and improvements that lurk below the surface. So, if you're still using an older version of Dreamweaver, or any version of Microsoft Front Page or its successor, Expression Web, now would be a really good time to take Dreamweaver CS6 for a test drive. Website developers can be divided into two general groups, those who sneer at visual interfaces and insist on coding sites using nothing more than a text editor, such as UltraEdit, and those who embrace the abilities provided by the applications that allow visual interaction with the site during development. And maybe a third group has emerged, too. Those who know and are comfortable editing the underlying HTML, CSS, PHP, Perl, and JavaScript but who really appreciate the speed and control the visual interface gives them. Dreamweaver has functionality that all three types will enjoy. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see some images that are from James Williamson's introductory program on Dreamweaver 6 at lynda.com. I highly recommend all of Williamson's instructional programs. They are all well-constructed. One important difference between Dreamweaver and Microsoft's website development tools is the fact that Dreamweaver runs under both Windows and the Mac OS X, while Expression Web runs only under Windows. Adobe's decision to eliminate the Live Code and Inspect buttons from the interface might shock you, but they'll return if you select Live View, and this is a tiny change that improves the interface considerably, by removing some points of confusion. That's because the Live Code and Inspect options are meaningless unless Live View is selected. Live View actually renders the page as it would be shown in a browser, and when Inspect is selected, hovering the mouse over any section of the page highlights the code in the code panel. The Live Code View is also helpful if the page contains PHP code or any other code that must be generated on the fly by the server. In the normal code view, you'd see only PHP code. Live code makes the appropriate call to the testing server on your computer and returns HTML code to the code panel. When something isn't working right, this is a big time saver. Note that you will need to install a testing server on your computer for live code view to work, but there are several free open source options available to do this. I think the most significant improvement, though, is Dreamweaver's new fluid grid layouts. Grids have been an essential part of the design process for print designers since the earliest days of print design, and now they've come to web design. This is important for web designers because the pages you create might be viewed on a large desktop monitor, a small tablet screen, or an even smaller smartphone screen. The grid is visible only during design, and it varies depending on the screen size of your choice and how many columns you decide should be in the grid and how large the gutter between the columns should be. When you create a fluid grid page, Dreamweaver automatically installs two files. They're called boilerplate.css and respond.min.js. These are designed to ensure the best possible page rendering on all browsers, old and new, large and small. One of the images you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website is James Williamson's demonstration site from lynda.com. When viewed on a large screen, the page renders with three columns. On a tablet, the page is automatically rearranged to fit two columns. And on a smartphone, everything appears in a single column. The associated CSS or cascading style sheet automatically switches the layouts based on a media query statement. As usual, Adobe has acquired some new business units that are designed to improve and extend the base applications. Acquisition of PhoneGap Build is one of these. PhoneGap Build is an open source platform that generates and returns to you a web-based application that runs on both Apple's iOS platform and everybody else's Android platform. The PhoneGap Build process is provided without charge. Most developers also know how to use web fonts these days to improve their site's typography, and Adobe now provides a far more robust support system for the at-font-face capabilities. But Adobe has also acquired Typekit, and developers who don't want to bother with the manual process of installing typefaces can use Typekit. The bottom line for Dreamweaver CS6, if you are creating a website, five cats, you need Dreamweaver. Many years ago when Adobe acquired Macromedia, I felt that this was probably an acquisition with a lot of promise, and it has proved to be just that. It's hard to imagine building a website with any other tools. Dreamweaver's code view, designer view, and live view work together to give any website designer the best of all possible worlds. For more information, visit the Dreamweaver website, you'll find a link on the Techbiter worldwide website. short circuits, if you think the LinkedIn break-in doesn't affect you, well, think again. On June 26th, I received more than 15 reminders from a Michael Costello about my invitation to add him as a friend on LinkedIn. The clues that this was a fraud overflowed in my inbox, fell onto the floor, and swirled around the wastebasket. Was this a surprise? Well, not exactly. But was it the result of the break-in? Maybe not. So here's what I found in my inbox. The message, first of all, was addressed to William Miller, that's not me, at Benedictine University in Lyle, Illinois. I've never been to Benedictine University, and I have no idea where Lyle, Illinois is, other than it's probably in Illinois somewhere. I received more than 25 copies of the same message in one day, and by the following morning, that number had increased to 71. 71 at which point they simply stopped. It seemed that Costello's address was at a domain in Brazil. And my LinkedIn inbox was shown to be at allegoryromanticism.com, a website run by an artist who posts in French and who probably doesn't know that his site has been compromised. And there was a link provided if I wanted to adjust my email notifications. It was in India. Well, except for that... Everything was completely believable. Bottom line here, don't be fooled by crap like this. Just a few moments ago, I was talking about Adobe Dreamweaver CS6, and the entire CS6 suite of applications has an analog in the cloud. Adobe Creative Cloud is a membership-based offering that makes all of the company's design, web, video, and digital imaging tools available online for about $50 a month, and now that includes Lightroom 4. Lightroom is designed to address the workflow needs of professional photographers, but it also works really well for amateurs, particularly because most changes made by Lightroom are non-destructive. Lightroom makes it possible to import, manage, enhance, and share images. Adobe's Creative Cloud, new with version 6 of the Creative Suite, is what Adobe calls, and I quote here, a hub for making, sharing, and delivering creative work. Adobe Vice President Winston Hendrickson says that the addition of Lightroom to Creative Cloud delivers on Adobe's promise to bring the best in Adobe innovation to the Creative Cloud members. Adobe will continue to add new products and services to Creative Cloud over the next few months, says Hendrickson, and the goal is to keep Creative Suite members up to date with the latest advancements in Adobe software and services. Signing up for Creative Cloud gives members a predictable monthly fee that they can plan for month after month, year after year. And it also provides access to the entire Creative Suite stable of applications, everything. So even if you may need one of the applications only rarely, it's there when you need it. Additionally, Adobe promises to make updated applications available first to Creative Cloud members. Adobe says that Creative Cloud gives subscribers everything they need to create, publish, and share their work virtually anywhere with anyone. Everything? Everything? Well, Creative Cloud members can download and install any of the new Adobe Creative Suite 6 applications, including the new Adobe Muse. The ability to create tablet-based applications with Adobe Touch apps, including Photoshop Touch that allows users to create on a variety of tablets and further refine on the desktop. You get 20 gigabytes of storage space for content, and you get tools that allow users to create websites without writing code using Adobe Muse software, and the option to host and manage up to five sites using Adobe Business Catalyst. This could be an application well worth looking into. Ever wondered what you could do with $1.2 billion? $1.2 billion in cash, is what Microsoft will pay for Yammer. Yammer is going to become part of Microsoft's office division. This is yet another foray in Microsoft's battle against competing social networks. Yammer was founded in 2008 by David Sachs, who will continue to run the division under Microsoft. Sachs served as chief operating officer at PayPal previously. Microsoft says that it plans to integrate Yammer into existing office products and will also continue to make Yammer available separately. Yammer functions with both iPhone devices and Android devices, and a Microsoft news release says that will continue to be the case. The deal caused Microsoft stock to fall. Slightly. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Lynn and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.